Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us again. I am here today with Siren Nagakiri, who is the founder of Disabled Hikers. And we actually connected through Instagram, uh, like I have with so many of my guests, which is such a treat. And Siren um, lives with a number of invisible illnesses, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, dysautonomia, ME or chronic fatigue, and a few other things, because as we were saying before, she's just so lucky. (laughs) She's just hit the jackpot with her diagnosis. So Siren, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a total pleasure. So why don't we start from the very beginning, the real basics? Why don't you tell us how you first realized that you had something going on with your body that was like different from people who aren't disabled? Um, yeah, I was about four years old and um, one of my parents was trying to, you know, get me up from a chair and my elbow dislocated. Hmm. And, you know, that was kind of an immediate you know, concern, something was going on. Um, and, you know, of course, at that point, CPS got involved for a little while and I was in the hospital and it was this whole chaotic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I started going to the Shriners Hospital where I uh, was grew up and they started diagnosing me and working me up for different things. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, and said, you know, I had, at the time, this was over 30 years ago. So uh, they said I had loose ligament syndrome. Interesting. I've never yeah. even heard that diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> Sound, it sounds like a fancy name for Ehlers-Danlos, but. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before they wanted to really kind of, you know, say the name, I guess. Is just, yeah. Well, yeah. it's taken a long time for that diagnosis and, and for the many different kinds of Ehlers-Danlos that are out there to be acknowledged. I mean, we're still in the process of acknowledging all the other different kinds that exist, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that was with your Ehlers-Danlos. So you got this loose ligament syndrome diagnosis when you were a little kid. Mm-hmm. What about your other, excuse me, what about your other diagnoses? Yeah, that's, you know, my various illnesses are in various stages of diagnosis, of course, mm-hmm. um, because it's so hard to get a diagnosis yep. in this country. Um, so yeah, um, for me, my dysautonomia, which is very likely it's um, POTS, partial orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Right. Um, that I started really, really having issues with um, about 10 years ago. Mm. And, um, you know, I had positive tilt table test um, and all that. And then they just kind of sent me on my way and said, okay, you know, that's that. <laughs> like, we'll just kind of keep an eye on your heart kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So have, have you actually gotten the POTS diagnosis or you've just been waiting all this time? 
I've basically been waiting for the official diagnosis. Yeah. Wow. So you're just continuing to see various specialists and seeking diagnosis essentially. Basically. Yeah. Right. And then with the Ehlers-Danlos as well, have you had a doctor actually sit down and say to you like, this is Ehlers-Danlos? I'm in the process of getting worked up again Mm -hmm. now. Um, You know, I've never had consistent health insurance throughout my entire life. Which makes it hard to sort of really tell people that you require continuity of care, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. When I have had health insurance, it was always, um, you know, usually some form of Medicaid, Mm -hmm. which is seldom adequate. Well, I was, I'm going to ask you about that, actually. In terms of Medicaid, do you think that being on a form of health care like Medicaid has made it harder for you to get the diagnosis, made the process slower than you think it might have been for somebody who was like paying privately into a PPO or something like that? Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's kind of hard for me to say because I've never really had the experience of having private health care except right. for, you know, two months at a time. Um, you know, but I do feel like the process is much slower um, yeah. when you're dealing with Medicaid. So, yeah. It seems like, I mean, my experience of speaking to different people who are in different stages of diagnosis and different kinds of healthcare, it seems like there's red tape no matter how you cut it. Um, but it, it is more difficult to demand continuity of care, especially if you're having to change your health insurance and things like that. And that makes it the hardest because then you're having to start your story all over again from zero mm-hmm. with someone new all the time. And that seems like it's been your experience from what you're telling us. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, now, also tell us about your other diagnoses. Um, mm-hmm. ME, chronic fatigue, is that something that you've had diagnosed by a specialist too? Or is that something that like, because I know that one is so hard to pin down as well. You're, you've got all these illnesses that are like the hardest to pin down and to get a doctor to admit or to you know say that someone has. So mm-hmm. um, how has that looked for you in terms of diagnosis? Yeah, that one's um, in process too. Um, mm. Yeah, recently I kind of brought the diagnostic checklist to my physician and said, "Hey, look, I check every single one of these boxes. Can we just, you know, get something on paper here so I can yeah. start figuring this out?" So yeah, we're in the process of dealing with that too. Great. And and what else is on your plate in terms of the diagnosis list? <laughs> um, well, I have <laughs> clinical depression and um, complex PTSD. Okay. Um, yeah, and I have, um, I had really severe asthma as a child. It's a little better now. I can manage it on my own, um, mm. but that definitely flares up sometimes. Okay. Yeah. So you're still dealing with all of that. And of course, I mean, this is the other thing with clinical depression, um, and I'm sure even with triggering your PTSD, it's like, you know, every one of us who's a spoonie who lives in this invisible illness world with everything you have to go through with doctors, with your lifestyle, with work just with living causes further depression, but it doesn't change the fact that there may already be pre-existing clinical conditions there. Mm -hmm. Mm. So how have you taken control of your health with all of these sort of nebulous diagnoses and, and probably I imagine nebulous treatments as well. What steps have you taken to control your health? Um, I, you know, one of the biggest things I've done is I no longer work full time. Mm. um, And, you know, I was trying to continue work for a long time and I was just constantly sick, mm-hmm. um, you know, always fatigued, just, you know, really kind of generally an awful state. Um, 
So I don't work full time anymore and I freelance on my own, um, very part time. And I'm in a situation where I can manage on a very limited income. Mm. Um, so that's been a huge help. Um, yeah. And allowed me so you've, stay. it's, have you mindfully put yourself in that situation where you're able to live on a limited income as well? Like that's been a very conscious choice. Uh, well, no, it wasn't mm. conscious at first. Um, I just kind of okay. wound up in that position and then I said, you know, I'm going to, make the best out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and have you ever pursued any kind of disability for what you've got going on too? I've, I've thought about it. Um, I'm not sure if I want to take that step yet. Right. Okay. I mean, that's a hard one too, because, and I'm sure this is an element of what you're struggling with. And, um, but you know, that the idea of having the moniker of disabled, like that identity, right. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard to come to terms with, when we feel like, well, this is my normal. Does that make me disabled? Um, do I have to live in that identity? And is that going to then change the way that I approach every aspect of my life? Is that something that you've been grappling with at the same time while you consider doing something like that? Um, I used to for a mm. long time, especially growing up as a sick kid and being constantly teased and mm. you know bullied and all of that stuff for you know being sick and injured all the time. I really struggled with identifying as disabled. Yeah. Um, but over the last few years that has really shifted for me and, you know, now I really, um, I really identify as a disabled person and yeah. you know, the community and that has been really, really powerful. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's so, it's such a, I don't want to say a double-edged sword, but it's this, it's wonderful and horrible in, in this equal measure as we sort of navigate our identities in this invisible illness world, isn't it? But the idea that we can then find community when we accept certain parts of our identity. And this isn't just limited to our physical abilities, right? It has a, ramifications across the spectrum of identity. But, um, you know, the idea that you can then take part in this community more freely and, and really accept yourself and accept others in that circle can be very freeing. Have you found that for yourself as well? I mean, for sure, you've started your own community, right? So, which we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about disabled <laughs> hikers. We're getting there. <laughs> um, but, you know, have you found that, like, there was a freedom in that community when you finally found people who you could sort of meet at the same level? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And that's yeah. so much of the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that you found along the way to this journey to health, especially because you were showing signs of illness from a very, very young age, that you needed a personal advocate at any point along the journey? Or have you grown to become your own advocate? What has it been like um, with your parents, with loved ones? Yeah, um, I think for sure I needed a personal advocate. Um, I can't say I feel like I ever really had one. Um, you know, growing up with my parents, you know, bless them, they did the best they could, but you know, my mom worked full time, my father was disabled. So mm -hmm. there just wasn't, you know, a lot of capacity there to really advocate for me. Sure. Um, yeah. So that was, you know, definitely something that, you know, I missed in my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it kind of set me up as an adult to really be able to advocate for myself. Um, and I really took on a lot of responsibility. So I feel like now my journey is to kind of go back and say, no, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask someone to help advocate, help me through this process. And that's something yeah. I've started doing more with my friends to just kind of say, hey, can you, you know, look into this for me? Can you make these phone calls? Can you, you know, look up these resources for me? 
Well, this is an interesting question then, because you and I are both people who've created communities, right? And, and it's come out, a lot of it has come out of our own experience. Do you think that creating the community that you have with disabled hikers has actually helped you with that reaching out to loved ones and that self-advocating? And um, aside from the fact that, you know, taking strength and, and advice from the people around you, but, and your community as it were, but, you know, that it's also given you more of a firm sense of identity and, made you feel more confident in your asks of others? Definitely, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know, I, I don't like to be a hypocrite, so I wanna practice what I preach. Mm. You know, if I'm telling people, hey, you know, it's okay to ask for help, then I need to be doing that too. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me what a typical day looks like for you. I know every time I ask this question, there's no typical in a lot of our lives, <laughs> but as you're managing your symptoms on a daily basis, because a huge part of what you do is getting outside, mm -hmm. what are you being mindful of and what are the extra considerations that you're making in your daily life? Yeah, um, well, I live alone in a really rural area. Um, it's pretty remote. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of external things happening. Um, so my day, you know, usually I get up and, you know, tend to my morning get ready stuff. And then too often, you know, I get online and I start working and before I know it, half the day is gone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a, that's solely an invisible illness kind of situation. <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think, you know, the hardest thing for me is just balancing, you know, all the things that I need to do you know, take care of myself, a house, you know, my pet, all of those things, um, do the work that I'm driven to do and take time to enjoy the outdoors, you know, while mm. managing my, my illness. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about this passion for the outdoors. How did this begin and, and how have you woven it into your work? Yeah. Um, well, you know, growing up, like I said, I was, you know, pretty sick kid and we were pretty poor. So I wasn't able to really like do your typical outdoor recreation activities. Um, but I really love to just like spend time in my yard and like look at the birds and the bugs and the flowers and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that really kind of instilled an appreciation um, for nature in me mm -hmm. from a really young age. And then as I got older and I came to, you know, understand, my illness more, I became interested in, you know, other methods of healing. So I started exploring herbal medicine and I went to a clinical herbal medicine program. And that, wow. um, yeah, yeah, that was also really, um, you know, allowed me the time and the space to very slowly come to interact with nature and be outdoors. Mm. Um, and I'm sure has also given you a lot of alternative holistic treatments that you're able to use for various symptoms of your ailments. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Wow. So you've, you've really, it sounds like nature is your, your freedom and peace and escape and you've woven it into the work that you do. Um, aside from the fact that the work that you do is about advocacy and getting outside and communing with nature as a disabled person, have you ever been confronted and forced to justify the fact that you have illness that's not visible to others? And, and how does that experience look or manifest? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, definitely in doing this work, um, you know, uh, some people have asked me like, hey, you don't really look disabled. Like, are you just one of those non-disabled people who are trying to, you know, benefit off the disability community by doing this work? And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, I'm, I'm really disabled. Like, I'm pretty damn sick. <laughs> yeah. 
And know, these are like, these are trolls and stuff? Yeah, trolls, people in general, um, you know, who just, you know, maybe are meeting me for the first time, you know, and mm. I happen to look relatively good that day. And, you know, they don't really understand, you know, what it is I'm doing. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, those subtleties are often lost on a lot of people, aren't they? It's that thing, like I hear people say, especially women saying, you know, like, oh, you know, I, I'm wearing makeup that one day that someone sees me and they think I look healthy and fine, but it's like, wait till I get home and I take my face off and <laughs> you see how tired I really am. Because the fatigue and the depression are like two of the most common side effects or symptoms of so many of these illnesses, right? And mm -hmm. the depression causes more fatigue and the fatigue is so different from just being tired. It's a bone tiredness and right. you're also dealing with pain, chronic pain. Um, you know, so managing all of that all the time, it's so much work and it's like you do have to put on a face with people, but what you're really doing with disabled hikers is, is removing that mask, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us about why you decided to start Disabled Hikers and what it's about and what it means to you. Yeah, um, well, like I was saying earlier, nature and the outdoors has always been very important to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I feel like, you know, people who are sick and disabled um, can be really isolated in our culture. And have, for me, having a way to connect with place, to connect with nature, um, has given me a, you know, kind of a home to always return to. I'm always able to feel like I belong somewhere if I'm able to, you know, connect and enjoy the outdoors in whatever way that looks. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. it's just looking out my bedroom window. You know, sometimes it's going for a hike. Sometimes it's sitting in the park. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so just, you know, encouraging that for other disabled people has been uh, really important to me and just, you know, saying, hey, we have this picture of outdoor recreation to be, you know, the super gung-ho hiker who's like summiting a mountain peak every weekend, <laughs> but that's not what it has to be. Mm. You know? Yeah. So in terms of the way that you're um, adjusting hikes and adjusting different walks, are you using adaptive equipment and choosing specific routes so that you're not triggering certain symptoms? Are you always mindful of that in the choices that you're making outdoors? Yeah, I'm definitely always mindful of that. Um, yeah, and I choose, you know, for myself, I choose hikes, you know, depending on, of course, how I'm feeling that day and kind of the level of risk I'm wanting to take. You know, I, I acknowledge that with my disabilities, you know, being outdoors, I always run the risk of an injury. You know, mm -hmm. I could slip and dislocate something pretty easily. So, you know, I take that into consideration, but I'm also not going to let it, you know, stop me from doing this thing that I really love. So, yeah. yeah, so I have to weigh all of that when I'm really, when I'm planning a hike for myself. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and what about adaptive gear and stuff like that? Are, do you find there are certain companies that are really good at, you know, creating adaptive gear? Do you rely on it a lot? Do you find that your community is responding to that aspect of it as well? Um, yeah, for myself, I primarily use um, trekking poles mm. and, um, you know, they're, they're a really big help. Um, I haven't experimented with too much adaptive gear myself because it's, you know, it's pretty expensive and it's yeah. pretty inaccessible. Um, you know, so that's definitely something that I advocate for. Um, you know, and I feel like in the outdoors in particular, you know, the primary representation that disabled people get is um, through adaptive athletes. 
mm-hmm. you know, which is amazing and incredible and totally valid and valuable. But at the same time, it leaves out a whole lot of people, you know, who maybe can't access that equipment or mm-hmm. maybe don't need that exact equipment, but still want to enjoy the outdoors. Yeah, that's very true. And I feel like with athletes, like what we see most is either sort of like the Special Olympics, right, where you're seeing very visible things like amputees or, you know, people in wheelchairs. But then there is a whole subset, as you're saying, of those of us who are in this disability community who don't necessarily always need um, mobility aids or, you know, um, different kinds of prosthetics and things like that. And it makes it harder for other people to take us a little more seriously as well in that respect, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of, you know, then the conversation about accessibility and outdoors kind of begins and ends at adaptive equipment and paved paths. Mm. And there's so many of us who need more than that to be able to access the outdoors. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. And, and in terms of like the trolls and the critics that you're coming across, what's like, aside from the fact that you have people saying, well, you don't look sick, what's the most common criticism when you're out there um, and you're getting people commenting on, on the work that you're doing? Um, a big one I get is, you know, various comments around, oh, do you just want us to pave the wilderness over so that, you know, people who use wheelchairs can get into the back country, hmm. you know, or whatever it is. Which is such and a limited perspective. Not- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what anyone's asking. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, yeah, that's not what I want at all. Wow. Isn't it funny? Cause it's like, you know, you think of people who are in the hiking and like nature communities as being more uh, open-minded, at least I always would have, but even that's a generalization, isn't it? It's like, there are definitely people who just don't get nuance, <laughs> no matter how you slice it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we're talking about accessibility here. In what way do you think that, um, cause it sounds like you're going into like a lot of national parks, local parks, um, in what ways do you think that they're working for people who have disabilities and in what ways, aside from paving all the wilderness, <laughs> do you think that, that, you know, organizations like the National Park Service, um, which I know are already limited in their, their jurisdiction and their, their funding, can do to make the outdoors more accessible to people? Yeah, there's lots of little things that um, that can happen. Um, just for one example, Olympic National Park is the national park where I am. And um, there's a long road that was washed out a few years ago, but it goes through, you know, along the river. It's really beautiful, um, but it's closed. So the national park put up a gate around it that, with an opening that was only wide enough for people who are on foot to walk around. Mm. Um, so, you know, I point out, 
talked to them and said, hey, you know, access could be really improved if you widen this gap a little bit to allow people who use wheelchairs and walkers to be able to pass through. And, and they did. And oh, how wonderful. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And there's already people using it, you know, so there's lots of simple things like that. Hmm. Um, you know, I would love to see more um, informational signs um, at the start of every trail um, hmm. that, you know, gave things like elevation and slope and, you know, material of the trail so that you had that information right there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That would make it a lot easier to decide. I mean, I know there's a lot of guidebooks and stuff too um, that are out there and you've written a lot of guides yourself, haven't you? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's really, there are no guides out there that are specifically for disabled hikers. Mm. Um, there's one wheelchair book that was written like 20 years ago and there's the creaky knees guidebooks, um, but they're not really geared for disabled people. Mm. Um, so really there's nothing out there right now. Um, so, which is one of the reasons why I write trail guides and why I invite trail guides, um, from the community mm. and I'm working on a guidebook now. So hopefully that'll, that'll happen. And that's all material that can be found on your website. And we'll, we'll tell people where to find you at the end of course, but it's really great because you're, making this also very easily accessible. As long as you've got the internet, people can find this information. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we've talked about ways in which the park services can improve a little bit. What about stuff that they're doing that's working? Is there accessibility stuff aside from like making those minor changes as you're suggesting um, and they're taking on your notes, but are there things that they're doing that are already helpful for people as well? Um, yeah, many of the parks, you know, they do have accessibility information up on their website. Um, sometimes it can be hard to find. It's not very thorough, but, mm. you know, there is something there. Um, I have found many of the visitor centers, um, you know, are pretty helpful um, in helping people find hikes and locations. Mm. So, yeah. That's really great. And talking about the terrain and the elevation, as you say, which are probably two of the most important things for people to know, aside from the general access and whether you can bring a walker or a chair or any other kind of mobility aid with you. Right. Um, speaking of, so we've talked about sort of like national parks and how the outdoors can be improved and ways in which it's working as well. What about our healthcare system? I mean, we've talked a little bit about this in the beginning of the interview. Are there ways that you've experienced our healthcare system really working? And what ways does it really need to improve from your perspective as well? Um, let's see. That's always, a I know this worms, is, this is such, it's such a can of worms, but I also feel like what fascinates me is that it always takes everyone I ask when I ask what's working, it takes longer to figure out what's working than what's not working. That's partially because we're solution oriented people, right? So we're like, Hey, here are my issues. Here's what you need to do to fix it because we're always on the phone with our health insurance companies <laughs> trying to fix it. But you know, the fact that it takes so long for us to figure out what's going right is so telling as yeah. well. Um, and, and I know that there are some things that are going right. It just doesn't mean that the whole system's going right. Um, and that we find our heroes in the system. So have you found like doctors who you've, who you've had great relationships with? Have you had experiences where someone was more willing to understand you as a patient or take on a diagnosis or a treatment plan? Yeah, I have definitely... One of my care providers right now, she's a registered nurse and she's great. Mm. Um, you know, she's the first physician I've had in a long time who was really listened to me and mm. was like, oh, okay, well, let's figure this out rather than just dismissing me right away. Right. Um, yeah. So that it's great to have her. Um, yeah. 
know, on the other side, I mean, she's super busy and she's not the only provider that I can see. So, you know, I don't always get the same quality of care elsewhere. Sure. sure. And, and what do you think about improvements? Like if, if you had the platform to just say like, this is the thing we need to change today about the healthcare system, what would it be for you? Um, universal healthcare and more coordinated care, um, mm. which I realize that can be a slippery slope sometimes. Tell um, us what you mean by coordinated care. Yeah, just making it easier for, um, for providers to communicate with each other and form a team around patients rather than the patients having to, you know, jump from here to there to here and, you know, fighting to get records and trying to communicate among all these disparate people and specialists. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point. And in terms of universal healthcare, I mean, how do you think, do you think it's that we all need to get out and vote? <laughs> you know, that like the thing that's going to really make that change is, is us participating in the political system and choosing representatives who are in favor of the kind of changes that we believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, you know, for a universal healthcare option, that's what it's going to take, mm-hmm. um, you know, is, you know, advocating, communicating with political leaders um, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also would like to see more community-based care, mm-hmm. um, you know, so forming in our individual communities, you know, more kind of care networks um, to make sure everyone's having their needs met and, you know, so more like local clinics and sort of, it sounds like that's also like opening the door to community within the clinic and letting people sort of meet each other too. So it's, it's community care, not just from the doctor, doctor's perspective, but also as patients. Right. Yeah. yeah I think that's a lovely idea. Um, and, and what about media representation of, I mean, cause you're someone who's a very specific representation of, of disability in the media, right? Um, mm-hmm what are your thoughts about the way people with disabilities are portrayed in the media? Um, I, yeah, I have a lot of feelings about it. Um, <laughs> Please share them. <laughs> We're here for all those feelings. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Like, Here's another can of worms for you to open. <laughs> yeah. Basically every time I see some kind of, you know, article or photo shoot or whatever that is just pure inspiration porn, I want to burn the internet down. Yeah. Okay. So you mean like inspirational quotes and stuff? Inspirational quotes and also- I apologize for half of my Instagram feed right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think inspirational quotes when they're designed, you know, by and for the community, that's one thing. Mm. Um, but inspiration porn is more of using um, someone who is disabled as like this inspiring figurehead you know like oh look at this thing that this disabled person is doing you know aren't they so inspiring because they're able to do this Mm. you know whereas really if it was a non-disabled person it wouldn't be a story at all like well and that's ableism in action isn't it (laughs) yeah 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 wow so um okay let's talk about privilege (laughs) since we're talking (laughs) about media representations can you talk mm-hmm. to us about the role that privilege or lack thereof has played in your health journey? I mean, you mentioned that you grew up with not a lot of access to resources, mm-hmm. um, that your mom was working, your dad's also disabled, and that you know, you're not sure about going on disability yourself at this point. So, so tell us how privilege has played a role in your life or lack thereof. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm a white person, and I identify as queer, mm. um, and so... Um, you know, but I have been 
you know, I have identified slash been perceived as female for the majority of my life. I no longer really identify as female, more leaning towards non-binary. Um, okay. Because so, you told me your your um, so your current pronouns are she her, but is that something you're thinking of changing as well? Oh, my current pronouns are actually she and they. She and they. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. She they. Yeah. So it's both. <laughs> Yeah. It's both. Yeah. Yeah. It's both. I prefer they, um, but you okay, know, Okay. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, like I said, I grew up really poor and I've basically been poor my entire adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of all those intersecting things has really, uh, been interesting in my yeah. life. Well, there's uh, invisibility that intersects with all of those identities. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating. And I mean, if anything, I'd say like at this point, like the privilege would be that you're a white person, but being that you're a white person who grew up poor, um, that kind of changes the story a little for you, doesn't it? A little. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, you know, experiences and things that I've been able to access, um, you know, where if, if I had been say a black poor person, you know, it would have been that much more difficult for me or I wouldn't have been able to access it at all. Um, I definitely feel like there's times I'm taken more seriously um, because I am white and because I'm able to communicate in a certain way. Um, you know, I'm mm-hmm. able to talk their language, if you will. Um, yep. And that definitely gets me access in ways that, you know, wouldn't be able to otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really fair point to make. And it's really, it's also amazing to me to hear, usually the people who acknowledge privilege are the people who've had it the least, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that fascinating because the role that privilege plays is that it itself is invisible if you have it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a total lack of acknowledgement among people who have that kind of privilege that, that they have that privilege. Um, and that's, that's sort of a dawning consciousness factor, right? I think with mm-hmm. a lot of people, but the more we talk about it, the more they'll wake up to it, right? Yeah. Um, so do you think that you've actually experienced like undue judgment or prejudice in the healthcare system specifically simply because you identify as female and you live with these various illnesses? For sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I have definitely, um, you know, experienced the, Oh, it's just anxiety or, Mm. you know, Oh, it's just your period or, you know, (gasps) Oh, it's just your weight or, you know, Oh my, it's like your, this is a laundry list of things that make me mad. (laughs) It's just because that's constantly what it is, isn't it? And this is gaslighting. This is like, absolutely. This is what gaslighting looks like guys. Like if you go to the doctor and they tell you, Oh, it's just your period. Oh, it's anxiety, you know, and sort of tell you that your symptoms don't exist. That's what gaslighting, that's the definition of gaslighting. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So is this something that you've experienced a lot, do you think? And is it something that you experience more now in the past? Is it sort of shifting a little for you as you learn to self-advocate more and engage more with your community to empower yourself? Yeah, um, I, I definitely still experience it pretty frequently. Um, but mm-hmm. now I'm more likely, I don't always, but I'm more likely now to speak up for myself, you know, mm-hmm. or... You know, like recently I had an, an experience with a specialist who said, oh, did you Google your symptoms? You know, what's, you know, what's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Did you Google it? And Oh, that's good. So they didn't even know what it was anyway. So they asked yeah. if you Googled it so that they could get a definition. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 And then he said, oh, well, you know, you, you probably don't have that. I was like, two minutes ago, you didn't know what it was. So, <laughs> <whatever>. Yeah. <laughs> But it's a really fair point, isn't it? It's like, 
this is a combination of bedside manner and education um, mm -hmm. needing to be sort of a circle that's not complete <laughs> in the yeah. medical system. But that's not to say that there aren't great providers out there like your, your primary care doctor right now, who you were saying really sees mm -hmm. you as a whole person too. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So let's talk about some top three lists because you know I like to wrap these interviews up with those. What do you think your top three tips would be for someone who thinks maybe they've got something off or maybe on the cusp of entering this world of invisibility that we live in? What would you say is like, what was your, would be your advice to these people, your top three pieces of advice? Um, find community, mm. um, do your own research mm. and practice advocating for yourself. Um, yeah. You know, and sometimes I can even just be starting with your friends. Um, yeah, but it's a skill that we have to develop. So. And it's one we have to continually be students of, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause like, even as you've said, like getting better about telling our friends and loved ones when we need help, sometimes we even second guess ourselves. So it's good to, as you say, put it into practice and like put it into action. Mm -hmm. mm, I love those. Those are really good. And they're really practical as well. <laughs> um, and they're very much a reflection of what your work in disabled hikers is. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about disabled hikers too. just tell us a little more about, you know, why it exists and, and what the community means to you. Yeah. Um, so I started it in March, 2018. Mm. Um, and you know, I, we do a few different things. Um, I always say we, I'm the only person running it, <laughs> it doing it. <laughs> you're a, you're a yeah. collective. We, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the grand we mm, very grand. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, we do a few things. I lead group hikes, mm -hmm. um, you know, throughout primarily Western Washington and Western Oregon right now, but I'm looking at expanding. Mm -hmm. um, I write trail guides and invite trail guides from people anywhere in the country. Um, and it can be, you know, from their favorite trail, their favorite park, you know, their favorite place to hang out you know, whatever it is. Um, I provide information on, you know, the kind of information that disabled people need um, in a trail guide to be able to know, you know, whether a trail is going to be appropriate for them or not. Mm. Um, you know, I do a lot of advocacy and um, I do a lot of community building and just, you know, encouraging people to share their stories. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, and where can everyone find you if they want to find you as well? Uh, so I'm on the web at disabledhikers.com and I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Disabled Hikers. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, and then one more question for you. What are your, and I have a feeling I know what at least one answer to this will be because um, it's what we were just talking about, but what are the top three things in your life that give you unbridled joy that you're not willing to compromise, even if they might, you know, put your body in a little of an unsafe position, whether it's a a guilty pleasure, a secret indulgent, a com indulgence, indulgence, uh, a comfort activity when you have a flare up, you know, what are your top three favorite things that you always turn to? Uh, the outdoors, obviously. Yep. <laughs> that was, that was, I was like, I know what's going to be the first on the list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see what else. Um, uh, my, I have a spiritual practice, so I always try to turn to that. Um, that's great. Yeah. yeah. It also is often the first thing to go when I feel bad. That's just kind of very thing. interesting, isn't it? That's what happens to me with meditation, which is, I guess, my form of spiritual practice too. It's always the first thing to go, but it's the thing that I'm like, I need to be doing that thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to keep that balance all the time. 
It is. Yeah. It's yeah. exhausting in yeah. and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So your spiritual practice, the outdoors, what else? Uh, time with my dog. Mm. Which I'm yeah. sure also extends into nature in a lot of aspects too. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you say to people who are like me and like, I'm not really a hiker. I don't like sweating. You know, mm-hmm. um, like I'll go on a walk, <laughs> but that's about it. Like, what do you say to people like us who maybe don't necessarily have that proclivity for throwing on sneakers and going outside um, in terms of finding appreciation for nature? What's your advice? Um, yeah, just find a place that is close by that, you know, maybe even you go to regularly or pass by regularly and just start spending time there and, you know, just kind of breathe and notice what's around you and, you know, find something that brings you joy and is beautiful. And mm. yeah. It's about slowing down a bit, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Slowing down, you know, noticing things, um, mm. just kind of learning to appreciate our own role in nature. Um, that's mm. one of the things I love about nature the most is that, you know, there are lots of things that maybe look ugly or look broken um, or like they don't belong in nature, but actually they're really crucial to mm. the ecosystem. Well, it's so true and such a metaphor for so much of what we've talked about today. We have to take the good with the bad, don't we? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I do think as someone who, like, I'm not a terribly outdoorsy person, but like, you're absolutely right. Like when I'm sitting in a park, when I'm sitting in nature, like it does give you time to pause. And in a way also, I don't know if you have this experience, but it makes me a little more aware of my body too, because I'm creating space. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure pleasure having you here today um, and uh, really excited about the work you're doing on disabled hikers. And you guys should all check out Siren's work and follow along. And um, yeah, thank you so much for, for connecting with me and, and for having this talk today. Yeah, yeah, it was good talking to you. Yeah. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.